podcast you're about to hear is true. The names have not been changed to protect the innocent, the guilty, or anyone else. If you're interested in the same type of discussion related to organized crime that you hear in the traditional media, stop listening now. If you're interested in thinking differently or learning something, turn up the volume on your computer, smartphone, or mobile device. This is The Racket Report. Here's Frank Morano. I'm Frank Morano. Welcome to The Racket Report. This is the very first edition of a brand new podcast whose singular goal is to help you be better informed about what goes on within the world of organized crime. Now, this could include the mafia or La Cosa Nostra, but could also include uh, Russian organized crime or uh, any ethnicities organized crime, because that's the one thing that uh, seems to be sort of universal, is that just about every ethnicity has some form of organized crime or not. Well, when you look at the mafia, Of all the books that I've read, at least in recent years, about life in the mob, there has been none so vivid as the one that we're going to talk about today. The stories that are told in this book will... absolutely shock you. Sometimes they may not. And uh, it is really a book that you almost can't believe could be written by someone that's living. That someone is my guest today. He is someone you wouldn't want to necessarily meet in a dark alley. And it is he's the author of one of the most candid approaches in the last 50 years of mob history. Not in the New York area, not in the U.S., but in the world. It is my great pleasure to welcome Anthony Luciano Ramundi, author of When the Bullet Hits the Bone and a longtime enforcer for the Colombo crime family. Anthony, it's good to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Frank. It's a pleasure, Frank. It's a pleasure. How's everything? Uh, Everything is good. Everything is good. So, uh, Anthony, I think a lot of people understand how somebody becomes a doctor. You go to medical school, you study, you get good grades, you do a residency, you're a doctor. Everybody understands how you become a lawyer, maybe even an accountant, maybe even a cop or a firefighter or a sanitation worker. There's really no civil service test to uh, join the Colombo family, (laughs) is there? No, 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 te- no, no test at all. So, uh, how did you get started in the world of uh, of the mafia? Well, my whole family was involved. My both grandfathers, my grandfather Frank and my grandfather Antonio, excuse me, they were both from Sicily. They were both involved in the Black Hand. They were both bosses in the Black Hand from uh, from back in Sicily, and they came to the United States. <clears throat> excuse me, and my grandfather Frank, his uh, cousin. He had two cousins, which everybody would know. One is Frank Costello, and one is Anil Delacroix. They're my uh, grandfather's both cousins, my grandfather Frank. And my father's father, Antonio, Lucky Luciano, or or, uh, Uncle Lucky, he was my grandfather's cousin. And then he married one of Lucky's sisters, which was my grandmother, uh, Auntie Auntie Lucy, uh, I'm sorry, Aunt Nancy. And that became his brother-in-law also. Because, see, Lucky's father had an affair. And he had uh, he had an affair with another woman outside of his marriage, naturally. And he had four uh, daughters. One was Nancy, which was my grandmother. Then there was Aunt Lucy, who was married to Uncle Ralph, who my great-uncle Ralph was, uh, he was boss in the Black Hand also. Then there was Auntie Mary, and then there was Auntie Cumberlina. 
So my grandfather was not only his cousin, but then he was also his brother-in-law. And Carmine Galenti, if you remember him, he was the boss in the Bonanno family at one time. He was my grandfather, Antonio. It was his cousin also. That was his kid cousin. See, you're, you're born into it six ways from Sunday. Both sides of your family, multiple yeah. organized crime families. By the way, the uh, I always wondered, the situation with Carmine Galante, everybody, I think, remembers him these days oh, yeah. uh, from, uh, unfortunately, the photo that uh, exists when he was killed and he had the cigar in his mouth. And Joe and Mary, yeah. W- what was the story there? Why was Carmine Galante whacked? Okay. Carmine was my grandfather's younger cousin. Now, Carmine was a great earner. He was the boss of the family. But what happened was Carmine was bringing in a ton of heroin. Constantly. I mean, his, his main thing, Jeffrey, was drugs. And he was bringing in so much heroin that all the families were having a problem because the FBI, DEA, everybody was cracking down on them more and more because they didn't know exactly. They didn't really know where they were getting all the heroin from until it came out. That Carmine Galenti, he was bringing it in from Sicily. He was bringing it all and having it shipped in. He had the connections. But it was like he was like he cornered the market. Let's put it this way. In the heroin trafficking, he was the guy who cornered the market. And then what happened with all the heat that was coming down, which the FBI on the families, they really couldn't do the business they wanted to do. Like, you know, with the gambling, the gambling houses, the Shylock and the bookmaker, the numbers, the sports, the horses, even with the prostitution. And they kept saying something had to be done. So finally, there was a meeting from what I was told. And the meeting came down that Carmine had to go because he was told more than once to cut back, cut it back, tone it down. You're bringing a lot of heat on us. And his answer basically was, you know, you know, excuse my language, but his name, his, his, his answer was like, you know, fuck you. I do what I want. I'm the head of the family. Made a big mistake when there was the meeting and my grandfather, Antonio, he had to give the okay. So he gave the okay that uh, Carmine had to get clipped. Uh, that, I mean, <laughs> later on we saw other bosses killed, but I have to think at the time that was pretty unprecedented to see the boss of a crime family, even one that was trafficking in narcotics, see the boss of a, of a major crime family killed like that. Well, to, get, excuse me, to have a hit like that put on him, yeah, but the thing is this, like I said, Everybody, all the families were suffering. In other words, the FBI, the police, everybody and anybody, they were cracking down anything. So, like, guys who were selling what they used to call years ago, they used to call them bootleg cigarettes. They used to bring them up from North Carolina. Trailer loads. They were busting them left and right. They were going into the gambling houses where the guys would go down. They would have poker games. They would have blackjack, uh, roulette, whatever. They were destroying the houses. They were picking up uh, the guys for the Shylock business. They were arresting them. They were arresting all the numbers guys, the guys who took the sports action, the numbers, the horse. I mean, they couldn't do business. And they said, either you straighten this out and get rid of it, or you go out of, you're out, basically you're out of business. Because, see, what everybody forgets, everybody doesn't understand one thing. With the federal government, I remember, I never forget I heard the FBI say when they arrested me that time. We have unlimited resources, mm, mm. and everybody forgets that, unlimited. And I looked at the agent, and I knew exactly what he meant. Because one of the guys says, oh, because one of the guys that was involved, matter of fact, one of the guys that was involved in one of my cases was Carmine Lombardoza. Now, Carmine was a millionaire, would be putting it mildly, 
Okay, let's put it that way. But, I mean, he earned what he got all those years. And me and him were talking, and he says, Carmine, they have unlimited resources. We were sitting at the bullpen at that time when the FBI arrested all of us. And everybody forgets the word, unlimited resources. So no matter how much you got, I don't care if you got a billion dollars. Right. <laughs> they got unlimited. Nobody right. wants to understand it. And they cracked down on everybody until the decision came down. But see, Carmine was told more than once, tone it down, cut it back. You can't be doing this. You're causing problems. He didn't care. He was the boss of the family. He didn't want to know nothing, Carmine. No, uh, Carmine Galante. He didn't want to know nothing. In other words, basically what I was told to me later on was that the power went to his head and the money because he had money coming in. I mean, at one point, let's put it this way, his family, the Bonanno family, was the richest family going because mm. that's how much he was doing with the drugs. Now it's like they're all into drugs now. I mean, I don't, I don't understand what the hell happened. Now it's like they're all into drugs, these families now. Well, one of the things you hear, and I've observed quite a few racketeering trials over the years, and they have a lot of turncoats that uh, testify about the oath you take when you get straightened out and are made. Mm -hmm. And one of the one of the things that you have to pledge to do is not traffic in narcotics. Now, how could that be uh, for the uninitiated that are listening to us? How does it go from you have to swear an oath not to deal in narcotics to the fact that uh, everybody, in terms of the mafia now, seems to be dealing with narcotics? Well, they've been dealing with narcotics for years. They turn a blind eye to it. As long as in no you're the boss of the family, I'm your son. Okay? As long as I am me personally not doing it, say the guys underneath me are doing it, that's okay. The way they do it now. But they gotta kick an end into me. But if I get involved in it, then right away they wanna go kill the guys that I'm doing business with. You know what I'm saying? Which is a lot of nonsense. Sure. That's a lot that's a lot of bullshit over there. You know, if you're gonna do the thing, if you're gonna do it the way it was supposed to be done, Nobody's supposed to be involved in it, but that's a lot. That's a lie. That hasn't been like that. Shit, I think that's been like that. that that's been like that since the fifties. They've been involved in drugs, hmm. heavily involved. Like I said, though, they, you could be a made guy. You got guys underneath you that are in the drug business. That's fine, all well and good. They're selling it. They're giving you an end. You take your end. You kick an end upstairs. They're closing their eyes to it. But there's a lot of made guys that are involved in the drug business. But the thing is this, the money is so big and it's so good what they're taking, they close their eyes and you, they don't care. You talk about going back to the 1950s, two names that are always associated with the rise of the mafia in America in the early part of the 20th century, but especially in the 1950s, happen to be Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky. You knew both uh, Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky. What was your relationship like with each of them personally and professionally? Uh, first of all, Uncle Lucky, that was my uncle. Uh, he was my uncle because, like I said, he was my grandfather. He was my uncle because he was my grandfather's brother-in-law, but he was also my grandfather's cousin. Got it. Now, our real last name is Lucana. It's not Luciano. It is Lucana. But everybody says, well, why don't you use Lucana? It's like to make it Anthony Lucana Raymond instead of Luciano. I said, because let me tell you, if you turned around and you said Salvatore Lucana, everybody will say, who are you talking about? He said, Salvatore Luciano, sure. they understand the last name Luciano. Oh, you're talking about Lucky. 
See, a lot of people don't realize that. Just like Uncle Frank Costello, his last name was, uh, his real last name is Castillo. I think it's pronounced Castillo. Castillo or Castillo is pronounced. It's not Costello, but Costello, everybody says, oh, that's an Irish name. No, it's not. You can either use it as Irish or you can use it as Italian. Mm -hmm. Because if you remember Bud Abbott and Lou Costello, Lou Costello was Italian. That's right, yeah. He was an Irish. His last name was Costello. Costello was a cousin that we had, and everybody adopted that name at the United States over here. But then my grandfather changed his it to Casa because every time they came to get Uncle Frank, I called him Uncle Frank because he was older than me. He was my grandfather's cousin. I mean, the guy's like, you know, 40, 50 years older than me, so I called him Uncle. So everybody thinks, oh, how come you call him Uncle? Well, the man's at least 40 years older than me. Sure. That's the respect they show him. And... um so what happened was Uncle Frank was like six two, six three. My grandfather was like five foot six. So he changed it to Casa because we had a cousin named Casa also. Because every time they came to look for Uncle Frank, they were great. My grandfather. I mean, the guy's five foot six. You know, he's talking about going after a guy that's six foot two. I mean, two two different. Uh, you know, it's like comparing King Kong to Fay Ray. Let's put it that way. So yeah. he made it into uh, he made it into uh, Costello. I mean, excuse me, into Casa. Now, with Maya, Maya used to come to my house on Baltic. Well, not my house. It was my grandfather's house on Baltic Street, my grandfather Frank. He had an eight-family house on Baltic Street between 3rd and 4th Avenue in Brooklyn, and it was only family. It was all my aunts and my uncles. There was no strangers in the house at all. Maya used to come there all the time because they were close to my grandfather also, and he was close with Uncle Lucky. Now, when Uncle Lucky got deported, that's it. He went back to Italy. But he still came into the United States. He started coming back into the United States in uh, 1953, the year that I was born. Not that he was coming in for me being born, but I'm saying but he started coming in in that year. And he came in maybe three, four times a year I used to see him. But, you know, as I got older and I, and I knew who it was, and Maya was with him all the time. Maya was always in New York. Maya was always in New York. He was always in Brooklyn coming to my, uh, coming to my grandfather's house. And Maya... When uh, when my uh, Uncle Lucky died, Maya was still coming in because he was doing business. You know, they were still doing business with my both grandfathers. And Maya just took a liking to me, and I took a liking to him. I used to hang out with him. I was a kid. He used to take me all over. Like, after Uncle Lucky died, I was uh, nine years old going on ten. Every time Maya was in Brooklyn, he would always come to the house to see my mother and father because everybody loved the way my mother cooked. My mother was some cook, right? They would always come there to eat, and especially Maya. He he would he didn't care where he was or where he was going to go out that night or whatever. He would always go to my house downtown, and my mother would cook for everybody. But Maya took me all over the place with him when I was a kid, and he taught me a lot of things, Maya. And my grandfather had no objections with it either. And my father didn't object to it at all either. Then they were all very close. In terms of uh, your own... Uh, foray mm -hmm. into criminal activity. You tell one story in the book, and again, I want to encourage people to check out the book because we're not yeah. even going to scratch the surface of uh, all the incredible stories you tell in this book. It's called When the Bullet Hits the Bone, and if that sounds violent, it, it actually is. You tell a story <laughs> how in the 1970s, the the movie that came to be known later on as the Bay Ridge movie, Saturday Night Fever, a movie everybody yes. knows, especially mm -hmm. if uh, you grew up in Staten Island or Brooklyn. They actually were going to film uh, one of their big club scenes in a club that you were affiliated with. 
And yes. it, directly or indirectly, this led to a confrontation with a, a gentleman named Cosmo. Tell us what happened. I had a friend of mine, Philip, and Philip was working with Paramount Pictures. He was like a scout for Paramount Pictures. He would be like, uh, you know, like when they were going to do a movie, they would find a good place to do certain scenes. So he calls me up one day and he says, you know, we're going to do a movie. He goes, called Saturday Night Fever. I said, oh, yeah, who's in it? He goes, John Travolta. He goes, Donna Pascal. He's naming all these people. I says, who's John Travolta? I didn't know. He goes, you never see Vinny Barbarino? I says, yeah. He goes, that's John Travolta. I said, oh, cool. He said, I said, what are you looking for, Phil? He goes, I'm looking for a club to go to. I said, you know what? I got a spot that you can check out. I says, meet with me. So I met with him. And I went up to the 802 Club, which was owned by Charlie Rusnick and his sister Mary. And I showed him the place, and he went crazy over it. He loved it. He thought, this is perfect. I mean, because when you walked in there, you walked down the stair, a couple of steps, and there was a bar to the right. There was the bathrooms. There was a coat room. And then to your left, there was a door. When you went in, the whole club opened up. There was a stage. There was a stainless steel dance floor right on the ground floor. And then you had three levels. You had the ground level. You had the next level with tables and chairs and the next level above that. I mean, the place was huge. I took him there. He loved it. He went crazy over me. He said, I don't have to go no further. He goes, this is the place. That's all right. So him and Charlie, they're making their, uh, you know, they're making their plans and everything and they're drawing up the contracts that's going to be done. This is going on for about a week. I had to go down to Florida. Me and my cousin Mac had to go down there and pick up money for our bingo paws. We had a couple of bingo paws with my other cousin, Anthony. And we had a little bit of a, of a problem and I had to go down there and see about it. So I was there for about a week. I get back and I see Philip and he goes, Hey, what's doing? So he goes, listen, he goes, I got to tell you, he goes, I, I can't do Saturday night fever in your, uh, in your friend's place. So we're talking about, he goes, well, I was told that it can't be done there. We have to do it at the, uh, at the Derby in Bay Ridge at the Derby club. So we're talking about, and he tells me that Cosmo went to see him and Cosmo turned around and told him, it's got to be done over here at the Derby. We own the Derby. You have to do it over here. You can't do it over there. Now, Cosmo's father, Vincenzo, the old man, he was in the family, and he was a boss in the family. He was like he was, uh, he was a lieutenant, and they were going to make him a skipper. In the Colombo family. In the Colombo family. Mm -hmm. So I turned around. And I says, okay. Sweet told He goes, you know, they said we can't do it here. I says, I'll take care of this. I'll go see what it is. So I went and I put it on record with Big Alley Boy. I put it on record with everybody. I said, listen, this is what's going on. Okay, go take care of it. So I go down to the Derby Club. I had Mikey the Bear with me and my friend Eddie. And I says, okay, come on. I said, let's go. I said, I got to go see Cosmo. So I went. I go in the bouncers. Everybody, hey, Eddie, how you doing? Fine. I was everything good. And I'm walking. This one bouncer kept following me. This guy was about maybe six foot four. You know, the guy, like one of these guys, you know, when they're always in the gym working out, and he's sure. showing off all his muscles. Sure. And he, he must have known, but the look on my face or something, he must have knew something was up. And he's following me. I told him, I told him what are you doing? Oh, and I'm walking. I said, you're fucking following me. Excuse my language. He said, so I told Mikey to be, I said, I said, told him, I said, listen, I'm going over here. Don't follow. I said, you follow me, you're going to have a problem. So he looked at me. I said, Mikey, he comes by me. I said, shoot him in the fucking head. Just like that, I told him. The guy looked at me and said, you hear what I'm telling I said, shoot him in the head. I walk over, and I see Cosmo. Hey, Cosmo, what's doing good? What's going on? I said, I want to talk to you. I says, who the fuck are you? 
You tell my guy he got to do it in your club over here, your father's place, the Derby. One thing led to another, and me and Cosmo, we had a heated argument, but no problem. He starts pointing his finger at me. I said, Cosmo, don't point your finger at me. He goes, what are you going to do? And he starts poking me in the chest with his finger. I says, don't poke me in the chest. He kept up, so I cracked him. I gave him a beating in the place. Next thing I know, next morning, rather, excuse me, next morning, I hear I got to go to a sit-down. So Big Alley comes, my cousin Mac comes, and we're all over there, and we got to go see the old man Vincenzo. Now, Alley's the boy, he's the acting boss of the family because his brother Carmine was in prison. He said, Andy, what happened? I told him what happened. He says, he put his hands on you? I said, yeah. He goes, good. So we went, we sat down, and I knew the old man Vincenzo very well, but he was pissed because what happened with his son. After he got done saying what he said, you know, saying his end of the story, what his son told him, let me put it that way, then I chimed in. And I was told, go ahead, tell him what happened. So I told him what happened. So now he's looking at me, and I says, you know me, Vincenzo, since I'm a kid. I don't put my hands on anybody. He started poking me, and I told him to stop, and he tried to rob the club from me to do the movie. So one thing led to another. The old man says, you know what, Anthony? He goes, it's over with. It's okay, fine. My understanding, and Alley Boy said, okay, fine. It's over with, done. We got Saturday Night Fever. I got Philip, and I've told Philip, I said, don't even worry about it, because I made, cause I got Philip to come down and see me. I said, we're doing it here in, in the old uh, 802 club. It's okay. About maybe, oh, I'd say about two months go by, and I've got a car. I had a car. I had a brand new uh, 98 Regency that I bought. And it's me and my cousin Mac in the car. And we pull up to his house. Now, his house is right on the corner of 74th Street and uh, 74th Street and 14th Avenue. So I pulled on the side of the block because we had the entrance on the side of the house. I get out. A car pulls up. Guys start shooting at us. I'm grabbing him and trying to pull him out of the car instead of letting him stay in the car. I had a gun on me. I got up. I, was, I started shooting back. I got hit. Now, I got hit in the chest, and I still got the bullet hole over there. The bullet, when it went in, it broke, and part of it is still lodged up in my collarbone because I got a lump on my left side. Missed my heart. Didn't go near my heart. Doctor said it was pure friggin' luck. Why Howard didn't go in. My cousin Matt gets me, tells me I'm shot. I didn't even realize I was shot. Throws me in the car, gets me to the Coney Island Hospital, and I get out. They, he takes me out of the car, rather, where the emergency is, and he's got to take off because, you know, you didn't stick around. They took me in, did what they had to do. Everything goes on. I told the cops, I don't know who shot me, which is the truth. I had no idea who shot me. But even if I knew, I wasn't going to tell them anyway. So a couple of weeks go by. Now I'm back on the street again. And I had a piece of a club called the Maximus Club. And that was on 77th Street in Brooklyn, just below 13th Avenue. Michael Bellino had it. And Michael Bellino was a big alley boy Persico's bodyguard and his driver. So I'm in there, and we're talking. He says, yeah, I'm feeling good. So this guy comes walking in that I know. This guy, Ken, comes walking in. Hey, how you doing? Good. How you doing? He goes, you know, Anthony, he goes, you know, I want you to know I had nothing to do with that. What happened to you? I said, what are you talking about? So he looked, and he goes, uh-oh. I said, yeah, uh-oh. Right. I said, sit down. I said, what's going on? He heard about what was going on and that uh, about the hit that was going to be put on me over this pitch of Saturday Night Fever. He never said nothing to this guy. Because supposedly he was either threatened or he was told to keep his mouth shut. So I made a deal with him. I says, find out for me who the guy is, and I want to know who the, force, who the shooters were. I says, you got a week. 
I said, because if you don't find out, if you don't come back to me in a week, I said, I'm going to tell you something now that I'm never going to find you if I catch you. P.S. He came back five days later, told us who the guys were, and that this thing came from Cosmo. I says, what? Cosmo got friends of his from Connecticut. Cosmo took exception that he lost Saturday Night Fever and that I gave him the beat. But Saturday Night Fever was mine to begin with. It wasn't his. And he didn't like the idea of his father, that the father went against. Basically, the father had to go against him because the kid was wrong. Sure. So what happened? Two guys come into Brooklyn one day. They're sitting in the car. They're supposedly waiting for a guy that they're supposedly going to do some business with uh, in, uh, whatever it was. I believe it was with drugs. And some guy unknown to them comes up to the car and opens up with a shotgun, empties the whole shotgun into the car, killed the both of them. Those are two of the guys who shot me, I find out. All right. Up in Connecticut, there was a place in Bridgeport, Connecticut, called the Bridgeport Bar. Two guys in the place. They come walking out one day. They're walking down the block one night. Two guys go walking down behind them. And what I'm told, okay, and behind them, uh, there's two guys walking behind them. And these two guys turn around. The guys start yelling. He goes, what are you guys, cops? What are you what are you, gay? What are you, cops? What are you, fag? You're following us? And the two guys just picked up their hands and opened fire. They had guns in their hands, and they killed them. And I go to find out these are the other two guys who were the ones who shot at us because there was four of them in the car that shot at us. Anyway, we get a call for a sit-down. The old man Vincenzo again. His son Cosmo now is running scared because the two guys, the four guys rather that he got were the guys that he got to try to kill me. And we went to the sit-down, and Big Alley Boy was there, and my cousin Mac was there. And we sat down with the old man, and we were talking. And I says, your son has, I, I, I played dumb. Like his son, I, I didn't admit that I knew that his son had anything to do with it. He says, I don't know who these guys were. Well, you know, it's my son. I says, I had no idea. So the deal was this. Keep your son out of my sight. If I walk into a club and he's there, he's got to leave. If I'm in a club and he walks in and he sees I'm there, he's got to leave. If he doesn't, then I was told, you know what, Anthony? Then he's in there to do something to you. You can take his life. That was the deal that was made. So they kept him away. and They put him in another club. They got him out of the brown dirt, out of the derby, and they took him someplace else, and they put him over there. Never heard from him, never seen him from then. And uh, when the old man died, I went to the I went to the wake, and when Coswell seen me, he walked out of the funeral parlor. Wow, out of his own father's funeral. Yeah, he walked out of the funeral parlor. Because I tell you truth, truthfully, Frank, I was got the okay to take his life, and I would have took his fucking life. Excuse my language, because you don't try to start, rob me or school me or my family. Let alone you got outsiders from Connecticut to come and try to whack us. Right, right. For something that belongs to me, it's my friend. Anyway, we got Saturday Night Fever made, and we uh, we made good money with Saturday Night Fever. Let's put it that way, because that's when they took the 802 Club and they called the 2001 Odyssey. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Give folks an idea of what you can earn 
at this point in your life, say in the late 1970s, being a, a being involved in organized crime? Give us an idea of what you were earning in any given week, month, well, or year. Uh, well, let's put it this way. I had uh, I had a Shylock business, which I got two. I was one away twice from prison for Shylock, and so you know, so you know that way. But sure. I had a Shylock business. I had a bookmaking business where I was taking action on the numbers, horses, sports, gambling. Uh, I had a gambling parlors where guys would come and they would have card games, blackjack, roulette, or whatever. Uh, in the seventies, let's put it this way. On a rough, uh, I mean, a bad week for me in the seventies was about my end was about maybe thirty five thousand. That was a bad week for me. In a week. In a week, yeah, wow. with everything that we had going, yeah, a, a good week, an average week that I was pulling in with all, everything that I was doing was usually totaled out to about eighty, eighty, eighty five thousand a week we were pulling in. Wow. Yeah, we had well, you got remember we had, I had one, two, I had three gambling parlors going. I had four after-hour clubs. I had a big Shylock business going. That I had business going in Brooklyn, Bronx, Queens, Staten Island, Long Island. I had it in Jersey. I had it in Connecticut. I had a good Shylock business. The numbers business, I was taking numbers. I had the day number and the night number in all the boroughs. And from Jersey, I was taking numbers. I had all the sports action I was doing. But, I, you know, I, did, uh, I opened up a lot of sports parlors and the horse races I had also. Not mentioning also that we had the cigarettes. Well, my uncle Frank was what he called. My uncle Frank was what you called. Uh, this is my uh, my uncle Frank Guido. He was what you called a cigarette bootlegger. We used to call them. He would bring in trailers from down to the Carolinas, like a forty foot trailer loaded with cigarettes from top to bottom. We'd have like three trailers a week coming in, and we were selling the cigarettes also. Then we had the guys with the square guys who would go. They would do a heist or break into a place where there was jewelry, furniture, uh, fur coats, or whatever. And the guys who were robbing all the swag and guys who were hijacking trucks and everything, too. I mean, you're looking about 85 grand a week with our eyes closed. Incredible. Now, it, no problem. All cash. Is, well, all cash. Yeah, I didn't think they were taking out taxes on that money. That's for sure. <laughs> no, uh, no, that was that was a tax. No. Anybody listening to you and uh, anybody that reads your book can tell that at a fairly young age you were a pretty street smart guy, and you knew basically everybody there was to know in the New York area when it came to organized crime. How is it then that you did not learn until the age of 24 that your father was involved in the mafia? I would think that uh, given the fact that you knew who your uncles were, your grandfathers were, uh, that you w- this would have been one of the first things that you came to know about organized crime. But that wasn't the case for you. No, no. My father, <clears throat> I had four, I had, my father had three brothers and he had a sister. All right. Now, my father's three brothers were involved. My Uncle Joe, my Uncle Nino, and my Uncle Sal. My, they were all longshoremen, including my father. Now, my Uncle Joe, he had a nice Shylock business going. My Uncle Nino, he had he handled like everything swag that came off the piers. My Uncle Sal, who was my godfather, he handled everything. He had swag, Shylock, in, uh, numbers, everything. But my father, as I know, as I know, my father used to get up every morning about Three thirty, four o'clock. He'd say, "All right, Mary, I'm leaving." And see me. He says, "Just tell me, Anthony. I'll see you when I come home." So, "All right, Dad," because he would leave about maybe five o'clock. 
have his work clothes on, go to work, and then he'd come home every day about maybe 3, 3.30, and he's home for the rest of the day, you know. And there was no problem. And everybody would always come over the house. Now, having like uh, a Meyer at the house and Frank Costello, uh, uh, Anil, Carlo Gambino, Anil used to come, Tom DiBella used to come, Tom Wong used to come, Tommy Martino, uh, Tommy, uh, uh, Tommy Lucchese, all these guys, Joe Bonanno, all these guys coming to the house on Baltic Street, to me, was a normal thing. And they knew my father. So as far as I was concerned, my uncles are involved, which I knew. My father, well, my father's close with all them. His friends are all them. My grandfather's all, but my old man goes to work. So I didn't think anything of it. So one day I go down to Piers. We had to have a meeting, me, and I go down there with my cousin back, and Tom DeBell is there and everybody. We had to meet with Anthony Scotto. Uh, Tommy Martino came in. Quite a few guys. Frank Barranca was there. Frankie Martin, they called him. He was all there. So we park in the PMP 7 on Furman Street in Brooklyn, and I'm walking, and I hear this guy yelling at a guy on the ship, yelling at him, cursing at the guy, I mean, calling him names. So, ah, and it was this guy's name was Joe Fish. He was a union, he was a union delegate. I said, oh, what the fuck? Who the hell is Joe Fish yelling at? So I glance up, and I see my father, and he's yelling and cursing at my father. Now I go, now I went berserk. I went in after him. I, my cousin Mac grabbed me. Everybody grabbed me. What are you talking about? Uh, what's it called? Carmine Lombardoso was down there too. I went, I said, I'll get him. I said, I'll fucking kill him. I said, he's cursing on my father. He knows that's my father. They said, let it go, let it go. Now I'm fuming. I'm, mean, they tell me, let it go, Anthony. Don't worry about it. You don't know. I said, oh, no. I said, I'll get him. I'll rip his head off. He just let it go. It's okay. We're walking, and this just started eating me up. I said, you know what? I said, listen. I said, I, got, I forgot something in the car. I forgot my cigars because I was smoking cigars back then at a young age. I said, I got to go get them out of the car. I go to my car. I come back, and I see him. I see Joe Fish, and I say, Joe, can I talk to you a second? He says, hey, what? I said, it's my father yelling and cursing at up there. So he turns around, and he says, yes, so what about it? And so all he said, I went to work on this guy. They had to pull me off this guy. I almost killed him on the deck over there. I put him in the hospital. Carmine, uh, Carmine Lombardoza comes running out. Tom DeBella, Anthony Scotto, Big Anthony. Come, they all come pull me off this guy. I said, I'll fucking kill him. I was looking, I was looking to cut him open. They said, what's wrong? What are you, stupid? They're yelling and screaming at me. And I said, I said he disrespected me. He knows that's my father. He talks like that. So they turn around. They say, don't you know? I said, don't I know what? So Carmine Lombardoza looks at me. He goes, Anthony, you don't know? And it's Carmine. What am I supposed to look? No. So Tom DeBella comes over. Now, Tom DeBella is my father's godfather. And Tom DeBella mm-hmm. goes, excuse me, Carmine Lombardoza tells me, because he don't know. I says, what am I supposed to know? They says, come in the office. They tell me in the office that my father and Joe Fish are very good friends. And I'm saying, but how was he, why was he cursing on my father like that? He disrespected me. He says, listen to me. He goes, that's an act. I said, what do you mean it's an act? Now I'm looking at the, now I'm confused. I said, what do you mean it's an act? He said, that's an act. He says, don't you know about your father? I says, yeah. He gets up and he comes to freaking work every day. I says, yeah. He goes, how do you think you live so good? He goes, you think you live so good on the pay that he makes as a longshoreman? I said, what are you talking about? And they told me, they said, your father is not a made guy. Your father doesn't want to be made. But your father works with the National Commission. And with us, your father's a shooter. 
I said, you what? He said, my father. They says, yeah, your father. I said, my father. My father, quiet man that my father is, that you know what I mean? That he cried when last he went off TV. You know what I'm trying to say? That he never raised his voice. I said, my he says, when you go home tonight, he says, your father and you are going to have a long talk. I got home that night. My father says, come on. I said, let's go into the yard. We got to talk. And my father mapped it out to me. My father originally did not want me in this life. Even though my uncles were, his, his brothers were, and they are his great uncles and everybody, the cousins were, he did not want me in it. I just gravitated to this because this is what I want. You got to remember, these guys are coming to the house, big-ass cars. They're double and triple parking in the street. The cops don't bother them at all. Cops don't say nothing. Beautiful suits. Wads of cash you could choke an elephant with their carrying. Big diamond rings, watches. This is what I wanted to do. I saw this at a young age. This is what I wanted. My father explained to me. My father was did not want to be made. My father just liked doing what they hired him to. What they, well, not, not that they hired him. When they called him to do a piece of work. But meanwhile, my father had everything going. My father had a Shylock business. He had a numbers business. He had everything going. And he made money all over the place, my father. But he never wanted to be made. But my father had a talent that he got when he was in the Army. In other words, my father got drafted. And my grandmother used to tell me the story that when he came home, he was never the same. He was never the same, my father. In other words, like, my father was always quiet. But if he got into a fight with a guy, they would have to pull him off because he would practically kill the person. He was never the same when he came home from World War II, my father. And his talent was that he was very good at what he did. Plain English, let's be blunt. He was very good at killing people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was his thing. I mean, he did a deal. He did a deal up in Connecticut. It was uh, Frankie Piccolo, who was the uh, boss of Connecticut at the time. They needed a guy. They needed a guy to get whacked, and they got in touch with the commission, and they had to give the approval. And they got it, and they got my father to do it because. The reason was that if this guy would have saw somebody walk in there that usually doesn't go there, the guy would have known that it was a hit or whatever. So sure. my father, he got dressed one night, and my cousin Mac picked him up, and he says, I'll see you later when I get home. I seen him go out with the suit, which now I knew what he was doing, my father. They took him to Connecticut. He was in, um, oh, what the fuck, uh, not uh, not Norwalk, it's past Norwalk. No. Uh, New Haven. Right. He was up okay. in New Haven. Went to New Haven, walks into this place, sees the guy. Hey, Frank, how you doing? Hey, my father, how you doing? They say, can they kiss hello? Good, how you doing? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I'm here. I got to meet somebody. All right, take care, Frank. My father walks past me. The guy sits back down. There's about five people on the table. My father turns it around, puts people to the back of the guy's head, and walks out of the place. That's it. One, two, three, and he came, but they got back in the car, and they came back to New York, came back into Brooklyn. Uh, There's a ton of stuff that I want to ask you about, and I hope maybe we can Mm -hmm. continue this next week, but there's at least one uh, one aspect that I want to uh, ask you about before we end our conversation here. Uh, Ed Koch, former mayor of New York City, (laughs) (laughs) you spent some time uh, talking about uh, about him in the the book. Now, when we think about politicians that are associated with uh, organized crime, a lot of times you think of uh, uh, Italian politicians or guys that exude some sort of a a tough guy persona. You don't necessarily think about guys like Ed Koch, but you write that Koch's involvement with La Cosa Nostra was actually pretty extensive. What was the story there? What was the story? 
I had a friend of mine, Dominic Rayon, and you can you can check him out. He's he was the deputy commissioner of Veterans Affairs. There was Dominic Rayon, Carmen Lasapio, the big politician from Staten Island. There was Dominic Barbarino, who was a uh, he was I think a detective inspector or something that had a private detective agency. Hank Velez, who was the captain of the correction officers, and Mike DiNicola, who was in charge of the correction officers also. They were all together, and they had, uh, you know, they had all their politicians, all their connections. And Dominic tells me, he says, Anthony, I'm going to speak to you one day. I said, yeah, Dominic, what's up? He says, we got this guy, Ed Koch. He says, he's going to run for mayor. He goes, if we get him in, he says, we can have the city. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, listen to me. He says, we get him in. We got the run of the city. We will be protected. We can do anything you want to do, we can do. He says, but, you know, as long as we don't, you know, start making headlines, you know what I'm saying? I said, all right. I said, let me go. Let me ask a couple of guys. I said, said, so how do we get him elected? He goes, we got to do fundraisers. And then we get fundraisers to get the campaign money up for him. And then we need to get the votes. He said, we need the guys in the union. Your family's got all the union guys. I said, yeah. We need the union. We need the longshoremen. We need the carpenters. We need the bricklayers, the concrete guys, the steel guys. I said, all right, let me talk to a couple of people I know. I said, let me see. So I got in touch with a friend of mine, Benny Kirkarado, who was a captain in one of the families. And he had a, uh, everybody should, if anybody's from Brooklyn, don't remember the place. It was called the Chaise Royale. It was a catering hall on 16th Avenue between, I think it was, it was the 62nd and 63rd or 63rd and 64th. I don't remember which one of them it was between, but it was on 16th Avenue. So I went to see him first. I said, Benny, listen. I said, i seen Dominic because he knew my friend Dominic Rayon. I said, this is what we got, this guy Koch. I said, if we can get this guy in and we can do fundraisers, I says, yeah, we can do whatever we want. I said, but here's the thing. I said, we'll do the fundraisers and we'll give them the money. I said, but we'll take something out for ourselves every night. He says, well, I got the catering I said, no, we'll do it on the nights if you don't have any weddings. He goes, I don't know. He goes, let me think about it. I said, all right. So I go home that night. I got a call. I got home, and I got a call made by 11 o'clock. He says, what are you doing? I said, no, Benny, not too much. What's up? He goes, come back to my house. I want to see you. I said, all right. I go to his house. He says, tell it to me again. So I explained the whole thing to him. We do the fundraisers. We'll take, we can do as many nights as you say we can do it over here. Benny, we'll do it. I said, but, you know, we got to give the money to them for the fundraiser, but we'll take a piece out for ourselves. And he said, and what happens if this guy Koch comes in? I said, Benny, we can do whatever we want, Dominic said. He says, you know what? He says, give him the okay. Tell him I said, we'll do it at my place. I said, all right, fine. Next day I see Dominic Rayon. I told Dominic, listen, I spoke with Benny. He says, yeah, he says, we can start at his place. He says, all right, he goes, we need about a week and a half, two weeks. We start advertising the fundraisers. It's okay. We started advertising it, and then we started doing the fundraisers at the Chaise Royale. Then we got, uh, what's his name, um, uh, Joe Scandori and Bob Scandori. They had a place on Avenue L in Ocean Parkway called the La Mer. Big catering hall. I mean, this is the type of place they used to have what they called all-night affairs there. Spoke with him. We were using their place. I was using the Pisa up on 86th Street, the catering hall. We used McCallie's on 86th Street, that catering hall. We were using uh, the one that we were using the ones on uh, 18th Avenue. There was an Italian catering hall over there. We were using that, and then we got everybody involved. Then we got the rabbis involved. They were doing fundraisers at the shuls and everything. Money was coming in, and we used to take an end out. 
and we used to give the money. Best Meisen used to come down to Dominic Ray Owens' house because he lived on the WO. She'd come down, we'd give her the money, and she would take it and go to Ed with it. I spoke to my uncles, I spoke to my cousins, I said, listen, you know we can get all this, this is what Dominic wants to do. I said, we get him in, we got it. So, my father and his brothers, they got all the longshoremen's to do it. Uncle Frank, he got the construction guys to do it, the carpenter guys. Maya Lansky got all the guys from the garment district all over the, all over New York. All the Jewish gangsters, the Jewish guys in the garment district, the diamond district. We had everybody. We had uh, we had the construction outfits. We had the concrete guys. We had the steel lashes, the steel guys going, the uh, the bricklayers, the electricians, the plumbers. We had everybody. Boom! This guy gets in. No problem. Once he got in, then I was told, you get a job, whatever the job is, you got to let Bess Meyerson know what it is, because Bess was his bag lady going back and forth. Wow. And, yeah, we had a job. The first job that we had was on, remember, it was 210th Street and Morningside Drive. I'll never forget it. There was a building. They were building a complex. It was going to be, it was a whole square block, right? On one end of the block, there would be a building that was, I think, was about six, seven, yeah, six stories. No, ten stories. I'm sorry, forgive me. Six, no, it was six stories high. Then on the other end of the block, there would be another building that's six stories high. You figured there was like uh, 60 families in each. Now, in between, you had four-story buildings. There were four stories high with about 40 families on both sides of the street. Now, you're talking about... It's a big job, and it would make like a big, um, how could you put it, like where it was, it was going to be like, like in the center then, that would be like the park area that they made, people just come out of their house and everything, whole big job. So we told, I told Dominic about that, Best Meissen comes down, I said, look, this is the job over here. She goes, well, what are you looking at over here? He says, I got friends that want this job. I had XLO Steel was involved in that. SNA Concrete was involved in this job site, the Carpenters Union. We had everybody involved. She goes, all right. She goes, let me tell you. She goes, what's the price on the job? I says, well, you know, the job we're talking about, now this was back after he just got elected. He says, well, you're looking at the price on this job. They're talking about maybe $90 million on the job to put this together. Because back then, the labor was a lot cheaper and sure. everything. She goes, all right, let me go back to Ed. She goes back, she comes back, she goes, here's the story. Ed wants $2 million, it's okay, and 2% of your profit. Okay. She goes, put a price on it, whatever you want. I said, what are you talking about? She goes, whatever the price is that you put on it, she goes, you're going to get it. I said, you mean the night? She goes, if you want it, she goes, over 90 million, she goes, you're going to get the job. I went back and I told everybody, and they put a price on the job. They put a price on $120 million. Two days later, we got a job. Wow. Boom, one, two, three. Got the job. Job was passed. But here's the catch. Ed had to have his money before he approved the job. Oh. <laughs> he was no dope. He got the two mil before he approved the job, and then he got 2% of the profit after that. You know, it's but we funny. got the job right away. With all the uh, people, and you know the list of characters far better than me, that have become cooperators over the years. And I mean, obviously, it's no secret that a lot of cooperating witnesses will look to tie any big name, whether the uh, crimes that they're tying them to 
are, or were actually committed by them or not in the hopes that right. they'll get off the hook. How come in all these mob trials, you know, since 1978, we've never really seen anybody come forward and, and implicate Ed Koch to the tune of being involved in stuff like that? Because they weren't involved. It was brought to me. So we were, we were the Colombo family. It was my friends that had it. I, I said I was involved. See, I would, see, Dominic Rayon, like I said, he was the Deputy Commissioner of Veterans Affairs. Now, I'm friends with him. I was very close with his both daughters. His daughter, Joan Marie, and his daughter, Susan. I was very close with the both of them, and I was always at Dominic's house. I went everywhere. With him. Like We had a piece of a club, which is in my book, that was on Stag Street and Union Avenue, the club that we took away from Shirley Chisholm's nephew. I mean, I go back with Dominic from uh, I was a kid. I go back with him. So, and Dominic and me always got along. We always got along. But I was lucky enough that I was a friend, with, you know, that me and him were friends. And, uh, you know, Dominic trusted me because I always kept my mouth shut. I never opened up my mouth on him on anything. Well, on so, that front, let me, let me end with this because yeah. I think a lot of people are going to be curious about this. You, in this book and throughout this interview and in my previous interviews with you, you mm-hmm. lay it all out there, warts and all, and you name names and you tell stories. Now, a lot of the people that you tell stories about are no longer alive, but, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, most of the people that speak with this degree of candor, they have already become cooperating witnesses. You never have. Right. No. How is it that you're able to speak so freely and are you concerned with either uh, retribution from underworld sources or uh, are you concerned with being prosecuted for some of the crimes that you're that you write about or admit to but that you have never been prosecuted for previously? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, the statute of limitations ran out on everything that I wrote about. That was number one. And number two, I have two disclaimers that I was told to put in the book. One is the amazing and possibly true story of the last mafia enforcer. And the other one says, any similarities between people, places, or events, you know, living or dead and whatever, is purely coincidental. Now, I was told to put that in the book, which that protects me. And statute of limitations ran out. Statute of limitations is seven years, and it ran out. But... What happened was, one, I never ratted on anybody. I never took a stand on anybody. I never wore a wire. I never testified on anybody. I never signed a profit, never did nothing like that. What happened was, when I seen everything was starting to change, like in the after the Colombo War in the 90s, and then like 2010, everything started to change. Guys weren't, uh, they weren't acknowledging guys. They were putting family before guys that were really there and since the ground started going with them. You know, like uh, guys who've been in the family for maybe 20 years, let's say, okay? That were good earners doing everything. You're passing them up to get made to make your cousin or right. uh, your daughter's going out with somebody. Nepotism, right. yeah, and these guys never did nothing. Plus, what happened, when it was brought to me, to my attention, I said, why don't you write a book? Because I was, I was thinking, I, I had left. And I went with another family. I was with Uncle Danny Salenti. I went with another family, and we were up at the Bronx on Arthur Avenue, on Arthur Avenue. Then I seen it was changing. Dan, I said, "You know what?" I said, "I got it. I got." I said, "This is no good." I said, "Because everything that's going on, these new guys that are coming in, these young guys, these new guys, they're basically all into drugs and this and that and whatever, and they're giving up people left and right. And the guys that were like me, because I was considered older than them, which I definitely am." 
they didn't give a damn about us, and they were having the, they were setting these guys up to put them in the jail, like they did with my cousin Mac when they set him up to go to prison. And we'll get into that story next time I talk to you. But I was told I was uh, it was brought to me about writing a book. I said, let me talk to my friends, the guys that I know that were in prison, that were all the higher ups. I got in touch with them, and I spoke with each one of them, and I said, listen, this is what's going on. You all know this. I says, I want out. I says, I was told I could write a book. I could do this. I could do that. Their answer to me was this. You know what, Anthony? Write your book, but, here's the but, under one condition. Well, two conditions. I said, what is it? One, don't make, if we're in the book, do not make us look bad. Two, don't make us look like monsters. I said, that would never happen. I said, if you are in the book, I will never make you look bad or never make you look like monsters. And they told me, do what you want. Get out of this thing because these new guys, they will set you up and you'll be in the you'll be in the cell next to us doing a thousand years. All these new guys that are around, I do not know them. They don't know me. I know them when they were kids. I got nothing about them. They have nothing to do with my book. They can say whatever they want. They know nothing. They all got straightened out and made because they needed men and because of who their family is. So I have nothing to do with them. I know nothing about them and that's it. I'm not. I don't bother them. Anything I wrote cannot reflect on them, or hurt them in any way, shape, or form. Sure, uh, Anthony. It is a fascinating book, and uh, the next time that we speak, we're going to get into some of the other stories that you tell, including yeah. the the death of uh, Pope John Paul the First. But if people don't want to wait until our next conversation, well, all right, all right, the thing about Pope John Paul the First right now, I cannot discuss that because I'm in contract right now to write the whole story on uh, it. All right. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll I mean, what, there's still plenty. I can plenty give you of, little hints, but once I get the story written, Frank, I'll be able to, I'll give you the whole story. There's uh, still plenty of other uh, stories we could chat about next time. Oh. Anthony, thank yeah. you very much. I appreciate you being so candid and appreciate you being so generous with your time. Thank you, Frank. It's a pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. If people want to check out the book, it's called When the Bullet Hits the Bone by Anthony Ramundi. Boy, wasn't that something. This is an idea, folks, of the kind of stories you're going to hear on this podcast each and every week. We're going to talk about with people who were in organized crime. We're going to talk with people that were attorneys. We're going to talk with people that were prosecutors. We're going to talk with even some members of, of law enforcement, journalists, you name it. We're going to bring you something interesting and compelling each and every week here on The Racket Report. Until then, I'll see you on the radio.